This is the 966 episode 62. Mr. Richard Wilson. Hello. How Mr. Lucian Ziegler. Hey, 62. 62. Yeah, we're keeping them going. This week, Richard, we've got Colby Connolly as our guest. We'll be talking about oil markets, the big kerfuffle here in the United States caused by the OPEC Plus decision. Some more on that hot topic in just a few moments with Colby. Really a great conversation, Richard, you have coming up. There's also a lot of other stuff going on that we want to get to this week. Uh, Richard, new statistics on Saudi Arabia's population. We'll be talking about Riyadh season 2022, which kicks off next week and more. Before we get going, subscribe to us wherever you're getting this. There's a red button on YouTube. It says subscribe. We really appreciate it when you do, uh, do that there. And on Apple Podcasts as well, 29 platforms still, Richard. Jeez, we are not getting episode. to the 30th. I know. We're almost to 30. We're, we're getting there. Yeah, but we <laughs> add one every episode. And sort of like adding, adding listeners and countries, you know. Yep. yep. 966 going global. It is going global. And we're almost one year old, Richard. I don't know when our birthday is, but it's got to be coming up here. Um, I think end of October. Was end of October, end? yeah. But also, I don't even know if I count that because that was our first. It was almost a, a pilot. And then remember, we were thinking about doing it like once a month, once every two weeks. And we didn't really get into the current rotation, I think, till after until the beginning of this year. Yeah, I think that's right. We had a great interview with Abdullah Hassan from the G20. He was a Sioux Sherpa um, with the IMF, and it was a great conversation. And we wanted to do those, and we also wanted to do sort of episodes in this sort of format. We had no idea we'd be on YouTube, so a lot is happening and changing still with well, this program. And, so, and then like a month later, we did that amazing feature with Lena Almaina who I'd love to go back and revisit with all this change. But um, yeah, so those were the, the, those were that the whole cycle, the whole frequency was, has evolved. Um, so, you know, I, I'm still thinking we're in terms of this format and the 966 as we know it, I count January 1 sort of as our start. So 2022. Let's do that. And then when we ring in the new year, we'll have our anniversary to celebrate as well. We also have talked about different formats going forward. Um, in addition to the ones we're doing serials and more in-depth dives. Yeah. Um, if there were 36 hours in every day, Richard, we might be able to do that, but uh, we're working on expanding the team here. So doing we're getting to that. We're doing getting to that. <laughs> Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Well, before I get to that, I, I, the kerfuffle is a good, a good, uh, a good one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> One of the nice things about the 96, one of the things I like is that we're, we're nimble. We can move quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, because of that, we invited Colby Connolly, who's a senior analyst with Energy Intelligence, which is one of the leading oil and gas um, analysis firms. I mean, 60 years old, 70 years old, but it's really well established. But he he brought some really good insight on this kerfuffle, which is quite a furor. For furor. Um, so anyway, yes, it's a good episode. But my one big thing. On May 19th, 2022, Saudi Arabia launched its fifth housing and population census. It was, uh, it's to be implemented by the Ministry of Health and the General Authority for Statistics. The last census was in 2010. Um, Lucian, you may remember, uh, we did a yellow segment on this in May, uh, and it discussed sort of a humorous and completely on-target government public service announcement. Do you recall that? <laughs> that encouraged Saudi citizens to refrain from their natural instinct to invite census takers into their homes for I food do, and refreshment. They would never get the job done. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so so uh, apparently uh, the Saudis took that to heart and, you know, suppressed their, you know, sort of innate hospitality because the census is in. 
And when it was launched in May, they basically said that the findings and all the data would start to be rolled out this quarter, fourth quarter, so beginning in October. So we we have the early sort of top line results from the 2022 census. And they are. Saudi Arabia's total population in 2021 was 34,110, 34 million, <laughs> that'd be a problem, 34,110,000. Up 16.8% from 2012's 29,195,000. So the annual growth rate has been 9.3%. Breakdown of the Saudi population between Saudis and and, uh, and non-Saudis is 19,363,000 Saudis, 14,747,000 non-Saudis. Age group below 15 years, 24.5% of the population. Uh, between 15 and 64 years is 72% of the population. So again, that's the top line numbers. Um, and we can expect more data to be announced, especially regarding housing, demographics, et cetera. Uh, but these are early returns on an important study. It's, it, you know, as, as mentioned, this, it was done, last one was done in, in 2012, in 2010, actually. This one was delayed, obviously, because of the pandemic. Uh, so there you have it. Those are the latest big numbers from the Saudi 2022 census. A very heavily caffeinated, highly caffeinated census, um, if they were unable to resist the lure of bringing in for coffee. Um, really cool stuff, Richard. It does show that Saudi Arabia is growing very quickly. Um, we did a sort of a, a featured article on this on our website, suscg.com this week, and had some data that was more forecasted from worldometers.com or worldometers.com info, which I discovered during the pandemic is a really good tracker of COVID cases locally and globally. And they sort of, they use some of the current numbers, like these numbers coming out, and then they forecast what's coming up next or what's going to be announced this year. So they said roughly 36 million by the end of this year, but we won't know because these numbers are from 2021. But either way, this is, this is really cool. Um, really interesting stuff too on the population. Um, 25%, you said, under 15, which is a key number. That's a lot of, of youth in Saudi Arabia, which has sort of been a, a thing for about a decade. Um, yeah. But that's but it kind of highlights how young Saudi Arabia's population is. It's not as young as it used to be, though, a few years ago. And I think that it's because Saudis are having fewer kids. The nature of the fi family dynamic has changed a little bit. Uh, so it's a little bit more expensive now to have many, many, many children, as some Saudis do. So... Uh, just really interesting stuff. Uh, interesting stuff if you're in the B2B space, if you're in the G2G space, all this stuff is really good to know about Saudi Arabia. And that's an, uh, that's a good point. The um, It'll be interesting when they come out on this, because I'll be interested to see the housing and the demographics. So for example, yeah, all right, so rate uh, birth rates might be uh, probably declining. And why? But there'll be, there'll be more nuclear families. I'm guessing you know young families who aren't living with their uh, you know two or three generations in a in a in a compound they're living on their own in an apartment or a townhouse or a single family, um, you know because there's more of that. I'm hoping it it returns a lot of uh, interesting demographic uh, detail like that. So that is ostensibly that is to come over this quarter. Yep, very very cool. I should I want to add too. Uh, it, it, you know, 19 million Saudis, it's not a lot. No, I mean, no, it, it's not a lot. I think this is something that, that Saudi Arabia is aware of. And in terms of their planning and stuff, they're always a little, they have to be alert to the fact. Because so, for example, if you look across the, the Gulf, you know, Iran is is 86 million. You know, look across the Red Sea, it's uh, Egypt's 106 million. Um, 
Pakistan, two hundred thirty million. Obviously, on the on the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia is by far you know the largest population. I think the the native population in the UAE, the Emiratis, is just over a million. Uh, Qataris would be significantly less than that. Um, the point being is, is uh, Saudi Arabia has never thought of itself as a, you know as the kind of country that could you know just you know in terms of population is is huge, and I think they try and you know manage their foreign relations and manage their security issues and that sort of thing with with that in mind, remembering that there's still less than twenty million Saudis you know in the country. And in, and um, more Saudis, but but less than twenty million. They're obviously in their the throes of Nitakat, which is ongoing and constantly changing and updating. And actually, Richard, that's been that's been over a decade now. I think that that's been twenty eleven. Twenty eleven. So yeah, over a decade. So I mean, that's that's a challenge too. Is sort of getting it's related to employment, but getting these Saudis into jobs and then getting these expats out of the country that were there to work. So um, it's a it's a very fluid situation. But just for for our listeners or our viewers, it's interesting, and we've talked about this, Mohammed bin Salman's vision down the road, 2030, 2040, is basically a 50-50 split. Mm-hmm. You know, he sees, you know, he sees 40 million by 2030. Um, and and when he when he talks about Neom and and the line and that sort of thing, and what he sees even further down the road is 50% Saudis, 50% expats. And uh, and which is an interesting vision, and I think it's a healthy vision. It's you know the, the more capable and and willing uh, people who want to come to your country, the better for the country. Yeah, agreed. I wonder what the split is in the U.S. from for citizens and uh, immigrants and non-citizens. I mean, the U.S. is a completely different beast, obviously. But um, well, it is, and we've had generations of cycles for people, you know, immigrants to come and then you know become uh, immersed in in you know, basically just, you know, involved in the country. So we're all immigrants in essence, which I guess in the long term is going to be an interesting story for Saudi Arabia as generations unfold and decades and decades into the future, how they deal with citizenship for a lot of these folks. I was just about to say, yeah, what what does it mean to really be Saudi? Because right now to get Saudi citizenship is not easy, whereas in the U.S., it's a little bit easier. I mean, not easy either, but if you're born here, you're automatically a U.S. citizen. In Saudi Arabia, that's not the case. So... Yeah. Um, the definition of Saudi identity going forward is is something that MBS is focused on, but it's just an interesting thing to think about because um, there's enormous pride there. I mean, especially for Saudis that are, you know, really go back, have a strong tribe identity, et cetera. It is and enormous you- pride. And it's a pride that comes from being in a, you know, an emerging country, a developing country that's not very big. And I suppose it's the pride we all felt, you know, you know, when there were 13 colonies. Mm-hmm. Um you know, of being an American vis-a-vis British or French. And uh, and that's I'm sure that's not a good an, an apt analogy. I'm sure there's people who have problems with that. My point being is 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 once again when we look at Saudi Arabia, it's a young country and all these things that we take for granted in terms of evolving into a a nation, which is different from a country, um, they're either, you know, on their way to, passing through but not yet on the other side. So it, as, as ever, Saudi Arabia is endlessly fascinating. This will be one of the things that we'll watch to see how it, it resolves itself. Indeed. Do we have uh, any timelines on the rest of the data? Because I know some of the data was released by the Ministry of Health, I think. I could have I that think wrong. It, uh, they took the lead on this. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay, it, just, yeah. It, it just said, um, you know, 
in the May announcement said it'd be start coming out uh, and beginning in October and into the fourth quarter. Um, so I assume we'll see more of this. This was the first we've seen of it. Yeah. So, so a little bit of a trickle as they process it. It takes the census people a long time to do their work here in the U.S. So, um, yep. Very interesting. Richard, my one big thing this week, speaking of youth, Riyadh season 2022 is coming up. <laughs> it's going to be lit. Big announcement yesterday from the chairman of the board of directors of the General Entertainment Authority, the GEA, Turkey Al Sheikh, one of the more interesting guys in Saudi. We've done a segment on him, uh, soccer club owner. Um, he's the guy, I was thinking about this, Richard, he's sort of like the M, the master of ceremonies of all the entertainment things going on in, in Saudi. So probably has a very interesting job, would make a great documentary. Um, so he confirmed yesterday the start of the um, Riyadh season, which is October 21st next week, and revealing some interesting details about what's in store this year. Context first, Richard, you and I know this, but the Riyadh season is it is in its third edition. It's sort of like a citywide fair and festival that lasts for months, not just days or weeks, and it takes place in various forms across different neighborhoods all across Riyadh. Um, this year, it will take place in 15 separate areas across the Saudi capital. Part of Vision 2030's broader goal of making Saudi Arabia a more attractive place to live and visit. And this year, there is something for everyone at every age. On to the deets, um, which were revealed. First, the, <laughs> this, the season will be kicked off by a performance from Cirque du Soleil, which is cool, obviously. Um, two of the main entertainment and dining areas, the Boulevard Riyadh City and the Boulevard World, which are two separate areas are kind of new. The Boulevard Riyadh city is year round. It's restaurants. It's really cool. It's like a new promenade there. Um, those will be connected this year by a cable car with a capacity of up to 3000 visitors per hour. That's new and really cool. The Boulevard Riyadh city area has been expanded to include 12 new restaurants and cafes. In addition to 25 Arab and international plays, including seven Saudi plays. Also cool. There's a lot of cool things in this. Um, <laughs> you've got the other area, I guess, main area, Richard, which is the Winter Wonderland. And that's more like your traditional fairground that will have five new attract uh, attractions. Um, so that has like a Ferris wheel and rides for children and stuff. That looks really cool. Um, it's like a carnival sort of. It's right next to King Abdullah Financial District, KAFD. It's across from the forthcoming Zaha Hadid Metro Station, which is awesome. That won't be in operation yet for this year, but inshallah next year, they'll have that ready to go for people to visit. Riyadh season will also include the, the Riyadh Zoo with more than 1,300 animals of 190 species. So that is really awesome too for the youngsters <laughs> to see. Good amount of sporting events as well. The World Cup kicking off right next door in Qatar uh, in a few weeks. So Al Sheikh announced that the Riyadh season would include the Fan Festival Zone at Mursul Park, which would accommodate 20,000 fans for each game in parallel with the exhibitions on late football star Diego Maradona on the Newcastle Club uh, and the Newcastle Club, excuse me. So those are like a like little exhibits for Diego, who is a legend, and the Newcastle Club, which is now owned by the Public Investment Fund. Um, other sporting events, uh, soccer, uh, demonstrations, exhibitions. So there's a lot going on, Richard, in the coming months. This is, uh, this is a Riyadh season. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be, it, it's, it's going to be cool. It's going to be something that people are very excited about. And it's not something that you miss if you're out of town for a week or two. It's, it's around all winter. Uh, you forgot that it's going to be WWE matches as well. I did. 
Forget <laughs> you, that. You, 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 you did a great overview. No, this is amazing. The only, the only quibble I have, and I don't have, it's not a quibble, but the only uh, expansion I would say, you mentioned citywide. This is countrywide. Mm -hmm. uh, people, people are flocking from the Eastern province in Jeddah, from both coasts, from the, the South and the North to Riyadh for this. It's become a destination event. And it's just remarkable because you mentioned first, you know, 2019, we had 2019, 2021 and 2022, obviously 2020 was lost to the pandemic. There was not, it was not long ago when the height of entertainment for Saudi Arabia was the Ramadan viewing season. When they, mm -hmm. you know, a number of, of, you know, shows and serials and, and, you know, big TV events, usually Egyptian or other Arab countries, not, you know, sometimes Saudi, but not often. That was the big deal. And, you know, and if you wanted to have entertainment for your family, there's probably something locally. There was probably a small carnival and that sort of thing. And you could go to the desert and they, I'm sure there are a million things to do. There weren't a million things to do. I take that back. There were things to do. But certainly, if you were going, if you were going on vacation with your family, you were probably leaving the country. Um, it's just this is, you know, we when it came out, twenty nineteen, we've talked about it in twenty twenty one, obviously, with terms of the nine six six. But twenty nineteen, we we covered it in depth with Sustig review for sure. Um, it's only grown. You know, it, it starts. You can get started now. It's just a, a destination place, and and it's only grown. And I think you know, I think it's kind of funny. Twenty nineteen season, there were twelve different zones. The theme of it was imagine. Twenty twenty one, there were fourteen different zones, and the theme of that was imagine more. And twenty twenty two, fifteen different zones. Theme of twenty twenty two is beyond imagination. Uh, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And not only, and that's one reason why Turkey Shake's job must be fascinating. What, wouldn't you love to have a job like this where nobody says no? Yeah. And your budget is just like unlimited. <laughs> Every <laughs> idea you come well, with. I want to throw goes, a month's long I party. I want to see that come to pass. <laughs> yeah. Make it happen. And, and, you know, so you, and, and you see it's reflected in this. It's just an extraordinary destination event in Saudi Arabia, not only for Saudis, but people who, you know, outside the country. And I just think it's, it's remarkable how it's grown and how, you know, the commitment they put into it. And it's not a little thing, you, you know, it's, it's from now, you know, sort of mid October through March. So there's time for you to get there. And, uh, and there's all sorts of reasons to get there because it's a great, you know, it's a great event, exciting and, and no more, you know, than for Saudis who just have to be beside themselves to have this sort of opportunity and these sort of venues for themselves and their kids. Well said. I mean, to be able to go out and walk around in the winter, it's it's really nice in Riyadh, especially during mm -hmm. the day. In the summer, you can't even really go outside during the day because it's just da dangerously hot. But in the winter, it's it's pleasant. In the evenings, you can put a jacket on. Um, Richard, they were assembling the uh, Winter Wonderland when I was there a week or two ago, and and it just was massive. I mean, it really looks yeah. like a very cool fair, and we've seen photos of it, but uh, it looks like it's going to be awesome. I also didn't mention the fireworks display. There's going to be, I think, 75 different fireworks displays over the next coming weeks and months. Um, looking online now, Richard, I didn't see this before, but just as you were talking, um, they do some drone art uh, stuff where they fly a bunch of drones up in the air. I think China did this at one of the Olympics recently, but it's like I'm looking at one that's just, a, and I'll try to include this. Actually, it's a huge picture of MBS but created with drone lights and it actually looks amazing. Um, but there's just like a bunch of stuff like this. And... This, is, this is what I mean. <laughs> to be Turkey El Sheikh, somebody, hey, 
What about drone art? Yes. Yeah. But what about like, a zoo? 190 animals. Yes. Do it. <laughs> Here's my checkbook. Um, <laughs> but it's funny. It's like when we go to the to the beach, Richard, in the summer, you know, or just uh, going to the boardwalk. It's like what there is to do is to sort of walk around and look at stuff and yeah. be with the family and have some games and entertainment and food and and stuff like that. This is sort of like that. It's like a boardwalk, a beach boardwalk all over the city for a few months with different things going on. Also a chance if you're a local entrepreneur, like in, in the SME sense to get your restaurant out there, get your food truck out there, your new flavor out there into a, a large audience. Um, this is a good way to do it. Um, same goes for artists as well. There are different places where you can display your art. And I know that that's a booming scene in, in Saudi now. But um, Richard, that's a great point about this being sort of a nationwide thing. Last year, the numbers on domestic tourism soared because of Riyadh season. People took the local Saudia flight or, or Flynas flight to Riyadh to spend a weekend there instead of maybe going to Bahrain or Dubai. So just really cool. Um, we will feature, and if you're watching this on YouTube, you've seen it already, we'll feature some photos and art and videos for from previous uh, Riyadh seasons, um, which are pretty impressive. So awesome stuff so awesome um, stuff so let's we, richard what do you think should we get to our interview with colby absolutely it's a good one it's timely quality 966 content enjoy if you were here for oil i i hope you listen to what we just talked about but we're getting into it right now so here's our interview with colby Connolly. we are speaking now with colby Connolly, senior analyst with energy intelligence and a non-resident scholar with middle east institute colby recently wrote a piece for mei entitled did opec plus side with moscow we're going to be discussing that with colby colby thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having me hey colby uh, really glad to have you on one of the nice things about the 966 is we can sort of do whatever we want <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> and we have, you know, we're, we're scheduled out, you know, several weeks to a month and, and, but, but this was, uh, an event happened. Uh, but before we get there, I wanted to give a shout out to energy intelligence. This is really a well-established, uh, outfit, you know, 70 years. I think you first, they first started publishing the oil daily in 1951. Um, what do you, what's your, what's your major focus over there, Colby? I'm a senior analyst with the firm's research and advisory practice. Uh, I'm, I'm focused mostly on supply side oil and gas dynamics uh, around the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, that includes OPEC, OPEC plus, uh, as well as a lot of energy transition dynamics. But um, I, I think there's really only one of those we're here to talk about today. <laughs> well, and, and I know you're deep in the weeds on this, which is why I'm delighted you can join us today. So um, a little something happened last week, October 5th, OPEC plus, uh, actually had his first meeting, her first live meeting, in-person meeting since 2020 in Vienna, Austria last week. And, um, and the, the, the big takeaway was they decided to reduce their quota by 2 million barrels a day, um, which was a bit of, surprise, of a surprise. I think people were anticipating a cut, but not maybe 2 million, 2 million barrels. And, and as we've seen, uh, and you know, through our daily newsletter and through your work, Colby, uh, it it created a bit of a firestorm, political firestorm over here in the U.S. And there's all sorts of things being, uh, you know, in the in the in the press and things being said, this and that. Um, the reason I, we wanted to have you join us today is we sort of want to look at the the market, at the dynamics, the actual mechanics of the market. What led to this decision? Um, <clears throat> what might be the outcome? But so with that sort of intro, can you tell us a little bit about OPEC Plus's thinking on this? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll break this down across uh, supply and demand, kind of looking into to, to 2023, because that's really what this is about. Um, you know, demand will paint a picture a bit more of, of where the market dynamics are for next year. Uh, I think the key word there will be uncertainty. Uh, but then I'll, I'll, I'll turn to supply because that will focus on the, the Russia angle a little bit more, which is um, that's that's at the heart of the controversy. So that's that's the fun part. Right. Um, and and, and I, I just preface also by saying that there's there's a lot of disagreement um, about this decision uh, among people that I that I have a good deal of respect for. So I'll, I'll, I'll navigate this as as delicately as I can and, and just try to keep it with with just the facts here. Um, the, the first thing I think that we we ought to understand, actually, even even before I get into the, the demand side, is that the the two million barrel per day cut that was announced in Vienna is is not an actual two million barrel per day cut. Uh, it will come closer to probably something in the range of uh, one to one point one million barrels a day. Uh, that has to do with a lot of the, the, the actual constraints that the organization has. I'll, I'll get into that a bit more on the, on the supply side of things. Um, but, you know, running the numbers and looking at, at where reductions can actually be made from producers that are, that, that are hitting their quotas each month, we're, we're really looking at something that's, that's closer to a million barrels a day. Um, of course, you know, when when you, you mentioned earlier that a lot of people had expected a, a much smaller cut, um, that would have, you know, been been commensurate with what I'm talking about now in the sense that we'd, we'd have something if, if the cut were a million barrels a day, it might be, say, closer to, to half a million or, or even even lower than that. Um, so that that's really kind of, I, I think, the story behind some of the sticker shock, so to speak, that, that we had um, coming out of Vienna last week. But um, going into to what the market looks like for, for 2023, uh, there, there's a lot of volatility and a lot of uncertainty right now that, that makes forecasting particularly challenging, much, much more so than it has been in, in previous years. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of people would probably argue that it's, uh, it's even less certain than when we were looking at, at the, uh, the sort of COVID rebounds a, a year or so ago. Um, and you know, I'm I'm trying to explain some of the variables that that impacted the the OPEC plus uh, perspective here somewhat. So if I'm I'm framing things that way, that doesn't necessarily mean it's 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 our house view. Um, but you know, one of the the major things that that is impacting um, you know a, a, the the economy more broadly, but you know, it, oil markets aren't spared. Uh, are, are the interest rate hikes that you're seeing coming from the Fed and, and other central banks around the world. Um, that's led to a very strong U.S. dollar. Um, crude oil and, and a lot of refined products are, are as you probably know, traded in, in U.S. dollars. So uh, this is particularly difficult for large developing countries. The cost of their, their imports uh, can, can kind of go up overnight with, with some of these moves. Uh, similarly, you know, we're, we're looking at, at, at possible recessions um, around the world. I, I think at, at the stage we're at now, it's more a question of, of when rather than, than if we get there. Um, you know, recessions are kind of, I think, self-explanatory for their, for their impact on demand. Um, but, you know, with, with you know, a, a range of opinions on when that's actually going to take place, um, an organization like OPEC Plus making a, a decision on supply action is... Um, is is particularly challenging, um, and and you know in in China too, uh, a thing that's had a major impact on demand is these zero COVID lockdowns they've got. 
um, that if it hits an industrial region or particularly populous region and shuts everything down, um, that that can take a significant chunk out of out of oil demand. Um, and it's it's really it, it's something that's difficult to predict. I mean, I don't pay a ton of attention to to China internally, naturally, but uh, um, you know, headed into winter with with infections, you know, potentially going back up, that's that's something we may see more of. Um, so China has a huge ripple effect, of course, uh, across oil markets when their when their demand is impacted. Well, it's it it's fascinating, I guess, to see the different sides. And so, so the OPEC uh, OPEC's court, a monthly report came out today. Where, uh, right. This is the 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 twelfth October, and it significantly lowered its its uh, global gross domestic product forecast from you know in for twenty twenty two. It uh, dropped it from 3.1 to 2.7, from 2023, <clears throat> 3.1 to 2.5. And it cited specifically elevated inflation you just talked about, rising interest rates and geopolitical tensions. IMF just came out with its report, and which is, it's, it moved down its forecast for 2023. We see, we see um, you know, uh, possible significant COVID lockdowns in Shanghai and Shenzhen, just as you pointed out, there's you know, there's a lot of things that aren't, we don't know how it's going to play out. And from the, from the OPEC side, you know, um, uh, Prince Abdulaziz uh, bin Salman, uh, the Saudi energy minister, basically said his quote, we wanted to give the market guidance. Um, as it is today, we feel much more assured we should give that comfort to the market for 14 months. If things change, we will tweak. All right, so you have this, OPEC is saying, we did this based solely on the fundamentals of the market as we perceive it. In the US, it's simply, why are you signing with Russia? And, 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 and let's, let's break that down. How does this impact Russia? And, and we'll get into some other aspects of it that, that you know, might've played into the, into the OPEC plus decision, but how does this impact Russia? Well, you know, there there are some Russia related demand factors here, too, uh, and and they are all things that uh, for, for maybe for the exception of one OPEC plus has has really found difficult um, to to try to project the direction of the market with. And I'd, I'd also point out that OPEC plus or, or I, I say OPEC rather for its um, uh, in, internal reports that it produces. I mean, they generally have a different uh view of the market than a lot of other forecasters, those being, you know, IEA or, or USEIA here, um, you know, but they, their, their projections uh, certainly, I think, have the potential to, to shape the supply impact quite a bit more. Um, but, but back to the, the Russia related demand factors that I, I did mention, you know, one of them, which is, is a more minor one uh, is, is something called fuel switching. Um, that that's likely to be concentrated in Europe, and that's because of, of scarcity of natural gas. Um, obviously, they're not getting certainly not getting anything through the Nord Stream pipeline anymore, um, and and so you'll have power generators that will switch over to liquid fuels, um, you know, using diesel, maybe in some instances fuel oil. Uh, that pushes demand upward, um, and it, and it may not only happen in Europe with with gas markets being tighter, um, but the 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 things that really do impact Russia here. Um, and, and that OPEC plus has, has been kind of, you know, expressing its frustration with, uh, are, are really a lot of the EU and G7 policies on, on Russian crude and refined products. So the, the EU will have embargoes on importing Russian crude, uh, that will come into effect later this year and one on refined products early next year. 
it's it's difficult to 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 see exactly how implementation of that is going to go. Nothing like this has ever been done before, uh, and and even more volatile really is is the the potential for the the impacts of this G7 price cap, um, and and that's sort of a a product of of the U.S. Treasury. Um, I think that the the design philosophy was to 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 limit Russia's income from oil exports while not um, totally totally blowing up the trade of of Russian oil. Uh, but you know, we we just had our our annual conference in London last week, the the Energy Intelligence Forum, and and there was a lot, there were a lot of attendees who were who were vocal about how confusing this policy is, um, and 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 some pushback on it just for um, for the amount of confusion that it's created. It it's not clear what the implementation of the price cap is going to do to the market just yet, um, and and past the volatility that that policy itself may bring. Uh, there, there's likely to be some form of a Russian response to it as well. I mean, it, Russia has been quite vocal about uh, not selling uh, oil products to to countries that implement the cap. Um, so, you know, we we may be seeing a, a, a continued cycle of some of these tit for tat moves here. Um, th th this is something that that's you know really, I think, kind of highlights the fact that there's there's growing tension in the the global economy right now between major producers and major consumers of energy. Um, that's that's a theme that you know I'm I'm not the first one to bring up, but it it's it's growing much more clear, and and I think that that divide is growing, um, and and we're also going to see you know and this this will kind of wrap up the the demand side of things from my end, um, but what 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 OPEC plus has has also found difficult, and and you know remember when I say OPEC plus that of course includes Russia as well. Um, were the, the strategic petroleum reserve releases that, that were authorized uh, by the White House earlier this year. Um, and it seems like we're probably going to get some more now, although, uh, you know, it's the SPR is at record low levels and, and those releases can only go on for, for so long. Um, that, that was a controversial policy to begin with. Uh, an SP, the, the SPR releases do add supply to the market, but they, they don't add long-term production. Um, so they, they can, in some sense, have an effect of, of actually putting a, a floor in a way beneath prices sometimes. Um, and, and bear in mind, finally, too, that, that the SPR was designed to be used in the event of an actual supply disruption. Um, you know, whether, whether people should or shouldn't be buying Russian uh, crude and refined products is really not what I'm here to discuss. But, <laughs> you know, from a, from a technical basis, that supply is still out there. It's, it's available. Um, you know, China and India certainly have have, um, have have been enjoying a lot of the discounts they've been getting on it. But um, you know, the, the the supply is is technically there, so it, it's not as though we're seeing a major outage where, for example, um, you know, all of Iraq's exports are shut in or something like that. That's that's not the type of situation we're we're dealing with here. Um, and and you know, finally, there there may be some kind of an attempt at a response from from Washington to the OPEC plus decision that's that's more focused on oil markets than US Saudi relations. Um, but I think it's really questionable how many policy levers there are to pull there at this point. Um, uh, you know, maybe more SPR releases, there's been discussion of, of an export ban on on refined products, which um, I, I, I think I would, I think we'd all certainly hope that that the administration quickly comes to its senses on. Um, that that would have a lot of a lot of difficult impacts on on U.S. partners and, and friendly countries, um, you know. So that kind of that kind of wraps up the demand side, and that that goes in, into it a, a bit on how Russia is impacted. Um, you know, getting into the supply side, I you know we do expect that that Russian production is going to fall. 
uh, quite substantially next year. Um, you know, maybe up to the tune of of 1.2 million or so barrels a day. Um, it it it's it's quite a it's quite a lot. Um, I mean, you know, Russia has been selling discounted uh, crude in Asia, um, and and you know their their response is kind of fine. We'll turn around and and sell these things in Asia at a discount, but hang on a second. I mean, the, the market there can only absorb so much. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, there's eventually an upward limit as to, as to how much is actually necessary. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really where things uh, look a bit more from the market view. Um, you know, I, I can get into the kind of the OPEC plus dynamics a little bit more and, 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 you know, what, what kind of a role Russia plays there. Um, well, you, you've touched on two things and you've actually used two terms that I think are good. One was sticker shock um, and the other was tit for tat. And I think, you know, again, looking at the firestorm in the, in the U.S. And, and, and a lot of it's on the Democratic and, and congressional side. I don't know that the administration, you know, is talking about, you know, restraining exports. And I'm not sure they're big fans of, of uh, NOPEC and that sort of thing. But um my guess is a lot of people who are writing about this and upset about it um, probably haven't looked closely at how the Saudis and OPEC plus perceive that G7 ice cap effort. And, and can you tell us a little bit about it? I mean, cause they're basically, from my understanding, I'm not an energy expert. They're going, okay, you're, you're, you're why would we concede um, to a consumer group, the ability to, to, to control and uh, prices? And, and so what I'm saying, I guess, is, is I think this is something the process has been ongoing. And even though they haven't named a price, they haven't set the price caps, has been very disturbing, I think, to OPEC+. Plus. The other thing is you touched on it is that um, uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which I guess in October is the last, uh, you know, scheduled a million barrel per day release, but it could be extended. All those supplies are, are, are low. Again, that's something that you, I think you described really well was a little irritating to them because it, you know, there wasn't a, there isn't a supply destruction that, that might cause for this. But anyway, can you tell us a little bit about that tit for tat part? Because I think things like the EU price caps, uh, SPR situation, these aren't widely understood as to why it might play into OPEC plus's decision to do what they've done. Right. Well, you know, the, I'll, I'll kind of start with with the price cap because it's it's the thing I can I can at this point probably say the least about because I've, I've highlighted how confusing it is to everybody. <laughs> um, you know what o OPEC plus doesn't like what it what it thinks of as as interventions into the market. Um, you know, I mean, sure, I, I suppose there's there's the argument that that OPEC plus, you know, adding or, or removing supply is, is an intervention in and of itself. Um, but, but be that as it may, um, their, their outlook is that they don't like these, these types of government interventions in the form of, um, you know, whether that is the price cap, uh, embargoes, sanctions, things like that. I think you've, you've heard language from, from OPEC plus ministers, uh, not, not just those representing Russia talking about politicization of, of energy markets, right? Um, that, that, that I think encapsulates a lot of their perspective very well, even if we, you know, we, we could debate whether or not energy markets are inherently political anyway, but um, seeing, seeing these kinds of moves being made 
uh, from consumers, uh, it it really just increases the friction uh, in in you know it increases friction in bilateral cooperation. Obviously, as as we've seen between between Washington and uh, and Riyadh in the last last few days, um, but you know the the issue of um, the 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 supply side is that we we tend i think in the us to think of of opec uh as as kind of sitting in in this position in the oil market where it's holding all the cards um the, obviously there's there's a history of of uh, a fairly negative perception of opec in the united states that i don't think i'm surprising anybody by by saying that um but but the reality is that the group also has a lot of constraints of its own um, it, it's it's not sitting on on this this totally unassailable position as I as I said before and and that's going to influence the decisions that it makes. So what what are some of those constraints? Um, well, we we've we've mentioned I think that uh, the the quota subject members of of OPEC plus of which there are around nineteen uh, out of the the twenty three members of the group um, they haven't hit their targets on a monthly basis in over a year. Um, it improved somewhat last month, but as, as of last month, the, the gap between actual production and targeted production was still in, in excess of 3 million barrels a day. That's a pretty substantial volume. Um, and, and that's also the reason you're not seeing a full, full million barrel a day cut, as I, as I mentioned before. Um, the, the underperformance had really been led by some of the major uh, West African producers that are that are members of what I, I like to refer to as as core OPEC, and in, in other words, the original um, or, or or core members of, of OPEC. Mm -hmm. um, that that was really Nigeria and Angola, and they're still really struggling. There are a handful of smaller West African producers, uh, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, that that also add to that. Um, but you're increasingly seeing that on the non-OPEC side. Um, a big part of that has come from from Russia. Russia has been, you know, well under a million barrels a day uh, in in terms of its quota for for a couple of months now, uh, as well as uh, Malaysia and and Azerbaijan that have that have struggled to hit targets as well. So what this means is that when the group comes up with a number uh, that it that it wants to use as part of a a market balancing strategy, they really are, are dealing with a set of numbers that exists only on paper. The, the quota system that OPEC plus has, it has been, been plainly broken for, for an upwards of a year now. Um, and, and they may be moving back towards uh, ways to, to try and address that, to try to fix it. Um, but it, it is certainly something that they have to deal with uh, both in terms of how they approach their market strategy and um, you know how they how they think about making decisions long term in the future, um, and 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 Russia plays a big role here. So it it's you know the 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 accusation I think of the the black and white OPEC plus uh, or or Saudi Arabia sided with Moscow is is extremely reductive, and and I and I can get into some of the numbers on 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 why that is, um, but you know I, I think one of the the, the key messages that. That I'd want to I'd want to leave you with today is really that that OPEC plus itself is a lot more uh, constrained in this day and age than than we think it is. And so when you when you heard um, you know before uh, before Barkindo died, he was kind of railing against underinvestment in in upstream oil and gas. Um, you you have officials from Saudi Arabia that that frequently say the same thing. 
Um, that's part of the reason they're saying it. It's 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 not just because they you know want more money for the industry or, or something like that. It's it's because they they really don't want to be looked at when prices are high and say, well, why can't you raise production? Um, you know, they 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 don't like getting rid of that spare capacity cushion that they talk about. Um, so you know, it, it's 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 a, a position that they they really don't like being in in a way. Well, it's a it's a drum they beat very loudly and, and uh, persistently for some time now. I know the energy minister has, uh, has, has spoken frequently about it as well as others. And also the UAE energy minister, they've all talked about underinvestment and they've all shown real irritation with the U S and saying, you know, look, you, you push the energy transition so hard. You, you, you've dissuaded, you know, significant uh, investment in fossil fuels uh, in favor of, of renewable energy. And you, you can't be surprised this is where we are, is what they're saying. And also, we don't want to be your whipping boy because this is where we are. <clears throat> um, well, and that's, and that's the fascinating thing about this. And it's a little you know, frustrating thing about this. Um, you know, the, the, the OPEC is saying we made decisions strictly on technical market information and data. And, and, and in the U.S. Uh, in particular, it's seen solely as political. And the, clearly there's a communication breakdown. There's a messaging breakdown. Um, and maybe there's, maybe there's some <clears throat> embedded tit for tat of this sort of thing. Like I say, I, I think, you know, the OPEC doesn't, didn't like the EU price cap, doesn't like the SPR, other things. Um, but, uh, you know, they, 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 they reject the idea that this was all to help Russia. And, and, and let's, it'd be interesting to see how this resolves itself. And there's a couple of things that may in my opinion, and I, but I tend to be optimistic, uh, may may help resolve itself. Number one, Congress isn't in session. Uh, number two, when they come back, it's quite possible that the you know the majority minority balance will have switch, shifted. So so when these new members do come in in January, um, you know sometimes things don't happen anytime you know between that November and, and January if some things have shifted. But uh, uh, number three. This action was taken a week ago. You know, Brent has the Brent price has gone up a dollar. You know what you're seeing. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. It may play out exactly how the Saudis see it, in that uh, you know there's significant reduction in demand. That um, you know this this won't move the price significantly up. We'll see how that goes. I'm not sure if you do forecasting or if you if you make guesses that way, but. It is interesting that it hasn't moved much. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so I, what I guess what I'm saying is, is, is we clearly we 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 clearly have a failure to communicate to communicate here. We clearly have, in terms of OPEC versus the U.S. and uh, particular parts of the of, of the U.S. political structure, you know, different takes, completely different takes on this. Uh, I guess we'll see what the real impact is over the next, you know, few months. But I, it, it seems like we're going to have a little hiatus here. To, that we're actually going to get to see what happens to the markets. Would you agree with that? Uh, to an extent, yes. I mean, the, the, the price, you know, when, when these discussions about a potential cut started, uh, it, it was well before the meeting. And, and we had gotten to a point where the, you know, the price had, had slumped below $90. Um, you know, flirting with the mid eighty dollar barrel range, and and you know Brent is 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 now above ninety again. I mean, 
you, you've heard about the the kind of the jawboning effect in the past. I think that got used a lot more when when Biden was initially talking about the the SPR releases. Um, I mean, I think the, the 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 price action that you saw immediately after the meeting um, wasn't particularly notable because that outcome was to a large degree already priced in. Um, and, and, you know, there were, there was talk of, of a cut before the meeting happened. Uh, obviously the, um, the scale was, was much larger than expected. Um, and, and it's, it, it's quite possible. I mean, you know, as, as the months move on, we're, we're going to see, um, some of these, these policies come into effect and, and we'll see the, the effects they take. Um, I mean, I think whoever makes the right, the right call on oil from now before, you know, say the first quarter of, of 2023 is, is probably going to be dining out on that for a while once they figure <laughs> out they're right. But, um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's an interesting, an interesting point you made about the, the congressional factor. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, reading, uh, you know, and, and I'll avoid straying too much into the, to the policy side, but, you know, reading some of the, the commentary that's, that's since come out from, um, from the Republican side of the aisle, it doesn't seem like there's there's as much of an eagerness um, to uh, to to turn this into something totally adversarial. Um, I, I mean, look, it's not to say that that nobody was confused by the scale of the cut. It, it, it's not that there isn't uh, any any room for debate about that. That's certainly not the the picture that I want to paint. But um, you know, the idea that you know, you can say that because this sent prices up, it ostensibly helps Russia. Um, it, it, it's a lot more complicated than that. And, and the, the quick breakdown for, for Russia being so, so critical to OPEC plus um, is, is that, I mean, first of all, it's it, Russian cooperation with OPEC plus isn't the new thing. It's, it's been around for an upwards of five years now. Um, the, the declaration of cooperation was renewed at this meeting, so it'll be around more than likely until the end of 2023. Um, but, you know, wh when I was talking before about capacity on paper, um, on paper, OPEC plus of the, the 19 members that are, are subject to, to quotas uh, has around 45 and a half million barrels a day. Um, the, the production baseline, which is not Russia's actual capacity, but it's a number that gets used to determine its, its quota, uh, is 11.5 million barrels a day. So that accounts for around 25% of, of OPEC plus capacity on the whole. Um, when you talk about the non-OPEC members, um, of, of which there are nine that have quotas, um, that's 15.2 million barrels a day in capacity, again, on paper. Um, but, but Russia makes up 76% of that. So really this organization is as, as a, something that's attempting to, to balance the markets or, or influence the markets, it, it's not viable without Russia. Um, you know, especially when you, when you add up the volume losses I mentioned earlier from, um, from West African producers and the fact uh, that, that three of really OPEC's kind of legacy uh, members are, are not subject to quotas. Um, Libya is, is not. Um, you know, there, there, there are supply, periodic supply disruptions that, that come from Libya that um, really have, have affected their reliability. I mean, if you look at a, a line chart of Libyan production since 2011, <laughs> you can almost get whiplash going, going yes, up and down. Um, you know, you, you've got you some, some certainly um, some, some discussion of, of maybe lifting sanctions on, on Venezuela. 
but they're mostly offline and and Iran as we all know is 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 heavily sanctioned so those are those are three fairly large capacity producers um, that that OPEC plus can't really factor into its its market balancing strategy because they they are either under sanctions they're offline or we we just don't know where their production is going to be um, so you know the, that that capacity being so much lower than what's on paper uh, is is really critical, especially you know given that 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 eleven point five million barrel a day number is is no longer applicable for Russia. It's it's probably uh, it's it's probably at least a million barrels a day lower than that now, which if anything, uh, you know to a degree makes them more critical for the group. I mean, I'm 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 not you know again to clarify, I'm not sitting here arguing whether they they should or should not be there. Uh, these are these are just simply the numbers behind why they are. If you're if you're looking at things purely from from a market oriented focus, it, it, it's certainly not unanimous that the OPEC plus decision was a totally technical decision. Of course, that's that's you know going to be the the, the public line. Um, I, I don't want to present the idea that um, you know the the decision they made is something that people who 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 do look at the market very often are going to go say, oh yeah, that makes sense because there were there there was a lot of confusion. Um, and, and, you know, the, I think the scale of it was, was a big part of that. Um, but the, the other thing, I think that one, one final point, and I'll, I'll just, I'll just leave it at this is that, um, you know, bear in mind, they, they do have a, a meeting coming up on December 4th, uh, and they, they will still be meeting, even though this, this production policy has been extended a, a, until the end of 2023. Um, that doesn't mean it's it's going to remain unchanged. You know, I mean, if if they see fundamentals shifting, you know, in a way they don't like, they you know they will add supply. I don't think any decision that that OPEC plus ever makes is totally disconnected from politics. I mean, how could it be? You have to get like twenty three oil ministers together and get them to agree on something, right? There's, there's of course there's going to be politics. It's it's not um, it, it, it it's not rocket science. But I think what yeah, I mean, where it gets so hyperbolic for me is is the idea that it's like being done directly to to influence the midterms and stuff. I mean, even if that's a maybe, I mean, maybe Riyadh sees that as a fringe benefit. I don't know, but um, I, I mean, it's just it's it's such an enormous decision in terms of of world oil markets. Like it's it's you know it's hard to see uh, uh, a congressional election being front and center there. <laughs> Colby Connolly, Senior Analyst with Energy Intelligence and a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. Colby, thank you so much for joining us. Great discussion. We really appreciate it. Oh, great. It was it was great talking with the both of you. And again, uh, thank you for, for thinking of me and having me on. That was our interview with Colby Connolly. Really great discussion. You can watch all of these interviews, uh, segments on YouTube if you want to just get one part of the pie instead of eating the whole pie. Um, we don't care. We're all good with it. Um, but that was really great. Thanks to Colby for joining us. Yeah. Shout out to Colby. He joined us on short notice and, and I, we've known that he's, you know, a quality analyst and you can tell here thoughtful informed. It was uh, it was really a good conversation. Mm -hmm. And we checked the oil box, Richard. So we got a, a big check with a big pen. So we've got that covered. Um, Richard, <laughs> what do you think? Let's get to Yella. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> All right. Number one, women no longer required to bring male guarding to Hajj and Umrah. Saudi Arabia has made the historic decision to allow women to attend the Hajj and Umrah pilgrimages without a mahram or male guardian. 
speaking at the Saudi embassy in Cairo, Tawfiq al-Rabiya, who we know, former minister mm-hmm. of commerce, quite, quite capable guy, also former minister of health, currently Saudi Arabia's minister of Hajj and Umrah, said, quote, a woman can come to the king to perform, to perform Umrah without a mahram, unquote. The announcement ends a decades-long rule imposed by Saudi Arabia, although exemptions have been given to females attending the Hajj or Umrah pilgrimage with large groups of other women. Yeah, this is a small step um, for women in Saudi Arabia. It's also a small step for men in Saudi Arabia. If they you know, don't want to go and don't want to be the mahram, then they don't have to, which is cool. Um, you know, this isn't going to get a lot of press, Richard, but this is, you know, this is significant and this is significantly impactful for some who, you know, uh, don't have a mahram that's, that's physically able, or there's a lot of stuff going on. So it's, it's, um, this is very cool. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Taufik Al-Rabiya is a, a really brilliant guy and, uh, in a good spot here with the, the ministry of Hajj and Umrah, but yeah, this is, this is interesting. It is. And, um, I put people will focus on the human rights aspect of this. It's, it's a good one. It's important and, and that sort of thing. But there's also a, uh, the Saudi Arabia is trying to make, uh, set up an environment where uh, doing the Hajj or Umrah is much easier. I mean, they've centralized their booking through the NUSK and they've got some new digital platforms. They're trying to uh, really formalize and, and, and rationalize and make things easier if you want to book a trip and get there and stay. Um, this is a big impediment. So, fifty percent of the you know, fifty percent of the if Muslim population, you know, you can't just go. All right, I need to find a date. I need to. I need to earn some money, set aside some money to do this trip that's extremely meaningful to me. And oh, by the way, I have to find a guardian or someone to go along with me, which just complicates it even more. So, for you know, the world, it makes it much easier to get there. I think it's important to point out that in Saudi Arabia in 2019, so what, three years ago, um, women, you know, were, they, they, they was, were given the permission. They, they no longer needed the permission of a male guardian to travel, you know. So that this really doesn't apply so much to Saudi women. It applies more to Muslim women all over the world. And, and it's an important step. We talked recently, Richard, I think it was either last week or the week before about um, using AI in the Hajj and Umrah to sort of make it a a better experience for all of those doing it. And, you know, it's just little changes like this along the way, incremental stuff that that is going to add up to a much better experience like you just described than maybe in 2015 or 2014 when it was just like, you know, I mean... A, a very big ordeal to do. So um, a lot of investment going into that. And it's uh, it's good to see this. It's also interesting that he made the sort of announcement, very straightforward announcement um, from the Saudi embassy in Cairo, um, which I, I guess he was visiting for um, professional reasons, but just uh, an interesting story here. So well, it'll, be interesting. it'll be interesting too. You know, a lot of the AI and other things is, is, is they're trying to make the experience safer. So they're, you know, understanding traffic yeah. flows and, and, and managing crowds and and any number of things that AI might give you a leg up on. If you eliminate the mahram, uh, that also adds a security aspect that you have to be alert to. So you've got a, a lot of un, uh, unaccompanied women in the midst, let's say if it's a Hajj, 2.5 million. But if it's the Umrah and the Hajj over the course of the year, it's 8 to 10 million. So you've got a lot of unaccompanied women you have to make sure are safe. And, um, you know, and they have, they can have a, 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 
an experience that without feeling threatened or harried or harassed or anything, because it's not, you know, in this milieu, it's not just Saudis. It's from people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, some, some pilgrims, even though it's a, it's a, it's a important religious and spiritual event, you know, may, may interact with women on you know, unaccompanied women in a way that's not, acceptable so anyway i guess what i'm saying is any decision has consequences so so um you know as opposed now to a woman uh who might be coming with their brother their husband their son they're now on a company and you have to make sure they're safe and they feel safe uh especially because this is you know and if you want to make the 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 umrah hajj and umrah really attractive and have more people come you need to make sure your public relations and and you can't have bad events or, or bad reporting or things that go wrong. You really want to be alert to that. So anyway, all I'm saying is, is any little decision has other consequences. This is a big decision. It'll have big ramifications and I'm sure they'll address it. I'm sure they're aware of it. Yeah. And Richard, this transitions to the next yellow, yellow number two very well, but um, I don't know if you've seen the documentaries on Netflix on the, on Woodstock, Woodstock, I think Shoot. 69 and Woodstock, uh, Woodstock. Uh, specifically Woodstock 99. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, I actually watched it on the flight back um, a few weeks ago and was just blown away. I mean, managing huge crowds of people is very, very difficult for or festivals not. or concert or not. <laughs> Man, what a nightmare that was. Mm. Um, still have nightmares watching that. Um, that's not really my scene. Anyway, the music looked great. The experience looked bad. So yeah, I mean, it, Saudi does that annually, but with 2.5 million people, so it's kind of it's kind of amazing. <laughs> Yellow number two, Netflix has previewed a selection of upcoming films and shows aimed at the Arab world and hailing from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, Egypt, and Jordan. The global platform has been steadily making inroads into the Middle East and North Africa since 2015 in the face of fierce competition from local players such as MBC's Shahid VIP and Stars Play. The new productions, mainly due to launch in 2023, include a Saudi Arabian feature, Al Khalat Plus, a satirical suspense film based on the hit online show Al Khalat, which was first released in 2017 and received more than 1.5 billion views across YouTube and social media. Whoa. Cool. 1.5 billion. That's a big one. Mm. Yeah, this is... You know, we, the first, the first year, year one big thing was Riyadh season, which we pointed out was introduced in 2019, and it's fun to see it now. The third season gets bigger and bigger and more attractive, and 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 now Saudis are accustomed to it. I mean, this Netflix uh, Telfaz 11 agreement was signed in November 2020, so just under two years ago, and here they are. You know, the agreement at that time was eight new films, and they're coming out with a couple now, because uh, they also announced a second Telfaz 11 feature, The Matchmaker. Build is a psychological thriller film with a supernatural slant. The film is set against the backdrop of the rocky desert landscape of the World Heritage Site of Alula. So that's pretty cool. I mean, 2020, you sign it, and now you've got a Netflix, you know, a couple Netflix uh, shows coming out. One of them, you know, shot in Alula. Um, it, it's just, it's just, you know, this is this is how progress is achieved. You just keep moving forward and and uh, and, you know, you, you set things in motion and then you start seeing results. 
Yeah, and hopefully you discover a larger audience outside of the region um, with these films mm -hmm. getting into English subtitles. I know that was big for Latin American films in the last decade or so, even more than that, obviously. But, um, you know, like one of Netflix's biggest shows is Narcos, and it's completely in Spanish, which is interesting, or, you know, primarily in Spanish. So um, very, very interesting stuff. I, I want to add on this um, a little addendum on Netflix as they uh, Netflix and uh, Saudi based SPT, which is studio production training have teamed up to launch what's called below the line KSA, which is a development program that will help train and upskill 15 young talents in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia on set training and workshops focused in the art department and production roles. A big, you know, one of the things we've tried to talk about on this show is that it's encouraging to see Saudi Arabia when they look at something, they're just not, they're just not going, okay, we want a relationship. We want to do a, a film with Netflix or we want NBC does this or that. We want to build a whole, whole ecosystem. And part of that is training young Saudis. So you can, you can actually come to Alula and film with Saudi talent all the way from a grip to a, you know, a, a videographer to a, all the technical aspects, set design and this sort of thing. So it's interesting to see uh, they're trying to backfill not only from the marquee stuff, but all the way down to the operational implementation stuff. Stuff, that's quite informative, but you, know, you understand what I'm saying. They're, mm -hmm. they're, trying to, they're trying to make it a whole ecosystem because also inevitably, you know, this, is, this kind of uh, getting into this sector is not only there's there's a showcase part of it and there's the the satisfaction of seeing something that has you know saudi creative creativity out to the world but it's also we need to create jobs too we want to see it create jobs and build tech you know technical capabilities and and skills within our citizens so anyway it's a nice it's a nice up and down sort of approach yeah, and Netflix sees a huge market in the region that's why they're doing this and why they're making the investments which is which is very cool so, number three, so. Saudi Arabia's industrial production rises by 16.8% in August. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia's industrial production increased by 16.8% in August compared to the same period a year ago, year ago. This is according to the General Authority for Statistics. The growth in IPI, industrial production index, is primarily driven by high production in three subsectors, mining and quarrying, manufacturing, and electricity and gas supplies. The growth of the IPI turned positive in May 2021 and has been growing continuously since then. This comes after negative trends witnessed during 2019 and 2020 due to the impacts of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, this just kind of speaks to the the momentum the Saudi economy has right now, and then what's driving the momentum. So according to the same report, um, Richard, which was in Arab News and um, cited the report that you mentioned in GA stat, which is a lot more detailed, but mining and quarrying grew by 15.5% in August from a year ago. Um, and that's sort of tied into, um, as the kingdom increases oil production to its highest levels, uh, 11, million per day, 11 million barrels per day in August, excuse me. Um, when compared with July 2022, mining and quarrying witnessed a month-on-month -month growth of 2.2% in IPI activity. Um, Richard, we've talked a little bit about the Hanagia mining um, operation just awarding its its bidders. Mining and minerals is massive in Saudi Arabia now. That's a huge, it's a new kind of renewed focus for Ma'adin and, and the government. So um, they're pleased to see this data. Absolutely. And it it sort of speaks for itself. They've, they've, they're on a nice run here. It's actually slowed down a little bit 
over the last uh, four months, uh, it hit a 26 year high, year year on year growth high in April 2022. So it's 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 you know it's coming down a little bit from that, which is understandable. Um, but yeah, it's great to see it in things like mining and corn and manufacturing and electricity and gas. These are these are sectors that they want to see grow, and they're they're three two of them are, are, are non oil largely. Um, so it's a good report, and and I, they got to make hay while they can because I think they're 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 counter cyclical in terms of what's going on in the rest of the world. They're growing, the rest of the world is contracting. They want to see this last as long as possible. And to that point, the um, IPI has slowed for the fourth month in a row. Um, so it's it was hot. It's slowing down a little bit, still growing. But um, yeah, they want to see it, keep it going. So yeah, interesting. Richard, yellow number four. 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 <laughs> it's amazing how quickly you lose track. Venture capital funding for Mena startups hits $2.3 billion and is on track to beat the 2021 total. Venture capital funding for startups in the Middle East and North Africa rose 20% annually to more than $2.3 billion in the first three quarters of 2022, putting it on track to potentially surpass the total investments attracted in 2021. This is according to a study carried out by Magnet. Funding reached $512 million in the third quarter, which was the, slow, which was the lowest since the first quarter of 2021, uh, Magnet said in its quarterly update, citing global economic and geopolitical factors. That, however, put total funding in 2022 at more than 80% of the 2021 level, leaving the industry with a full quarter to match or even surpass last year's total of about $2.8 billion. Yeah, good story. We, and we love Magnet. They do great work. It's you know, real insights into the, the VC uh, um, environment in the region. And uh, it's a little bit like a um, little bit like the IPI we just talked about in that it's it's on track for a record year, another great year. It slowed down a little bit this quarter, last quarter. Um, so just just for Saudi, you know, they talk about uh, the key retail. Uh, basically, the key sectors are retail services, e-commerce, and government. Again, Egypt, UAE, and Saudi Arabia all retain the three top positions in terms of funding value and numbers of deal. Deals, fintech, leading industry during the period, 94 deals valued at 747 million. Um, so what they're saying is that, you know, they set a record in 2021. They're, uh, they're on track, even though the third quarter was a little slower. To, that, was, that was two point, that, that, they're on track to beat the record. What I find interesting about, what I found most interesting about this report was, um, Magnet has a little graph, and maybe maybe we can include it when we do the segment. A four-year venture funding evolution in Saudi Arabia. So uh, through three quarters in 2019, 25 million. Through three quarters in 2020, 7 million, obviously, we know why. Through three quarters in 2021, 224 million. But here's the interesting thing about that. 99 million of that, or roughly... 125 million of that were mega deals over a hundred million dollars, right? So, so of that 224 million, a little over half were mega deals. 2022 through Q3, 232 million total. So, you know, ahead of the 2021, but a distinct difference in terms of mega deals. 
32 million dollars of deals were under 100 million 199 million were deals of over 100 million which is um you know as compared as i said as compared to uh 2021 about 75 million more mm -hmm. uh is mega deals which is a reflection of a maturing market i mean you have companies now who not only can get valued but also they can get funding of this amount so it's a really encouraging trend and uh and it, it again it leads it, it speaks to how the, the market is maturing and how these fintechs not fintechs alone but how these startups um are gaining in valuation and uh and it, it's an interesting progression an important one yeah i mean um it's just good, good data points there richard i think um What's interesting is right now, like you mentioned, just like the IPI, it's starting to slow a little bit, and this is not really a good time for that to, to happen. They've just started getting some of these startups going. Um, the investment is starting to hit the right fever pitch. You don't want it to slow down with the global economy um, when these startups need their follow-on funding round. So you sort of, you want to make sure that the government is there to, to support during this time. Um, Richard, actually, a, a guest we had on the show um, a few months back, Amjad Ahmed, who was just a great, he's a VC guy, um, VC guy in the region, really was a great discussion with him. Um, he shared a Wall Street Journal article, we'll include a link to it as well, sort of on the funding boom in the Middle East and how it's cooling down a little bit. Um, talks about, um, Amjad Ahmed actually says on LinkedIn, I'm just going to quote it, um, government economic reforms and funding support have been essential to the growth of entrepreneurship and venture capital and will be critical in sustaining the momentum through this downturn. Great founders continue to build companies, so supporting them by lowering costs and barriers during this challenging period will lead to a more resilient ecosystem. He's sort of talking about, we've got to keep the funding going. This, this, um, this momentum needs to continue and, and there can't just be a, a throttle back because the ecosystem is very immature compared to Silicon Valley, Germany, France, other areas where startup ecosystems are much stronger. So you don't want it to sort of as a very young, you know, growing plant, you know, which still Lame kind out. of weak. Yeah. Just sort of playing out. So um, interesting times. I mean, good data, and it, it does show that there are there's money going in, and there's excitement in VC in the region. But it can't it can't just go to sleep and have all these VCs hold on to dry powder during this time. Well, it'll be interesting in this fourth quarter to see what the trend is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't want it to, to to fall off significantly. But uh, Umjad Ahmed, uh, who along with Iyad Al Bayouk with Flat Six Labs, are yeah. two people we've had come on to the nine six six and talk. Uh, just so informed, so intelligently about the VC and investment environment in Saudi Arabia and MENA. I think it might be time to get Amjad or invite Amjad back on, but either one of those guys uh, would be awesome because geez, those were good. Those were good episodes. Mm -hmm. and um, interesting times. Number five, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia leaps ahead in world university rankings, 2023. Times Higher Education released the results of its World University Rankings 2023, which showed the UK's University of Oxford retaining its top spot for the seventh straight year. King Abdulaziz University has risen from 190 in 2022 to a joint 101 spot in the 2023 table, making it the highest ranked university in the Middle East and achieving the best ranking ever by Middle Eastern University in this table. Quote, not only has King Abdulaziz University risen dramatically to move within a whisker of the world top 100 to lead the entire MENA region, 
but other leading institutions have also made strong progress, and Saudi Arabia's overall representation in the world rankings has increased from 15 universities ranked last year to 21 this year. Enormous progress for Saudi Arabia's higher education sector. Um, Richard, we had a different Abdulaziz, Abdulaziz Al-Nazi, uh, Dr. Abdulaziz Al-Nazi on our program last week from King Saud University, recent winner of a very prestigious water prize. Sort of talked with him a little bit about the changes going on just at his local um, uh, university. But this is just impressive. This is part of a longer haul strategy from Saudi as, as part of Vision 2030. And it's one of the ways it's really sort of a, a demonstrable progress um, is the maturity of its higher education sector. He um, he mentioned and he talked specifically about the essentially the the resources that are available to him. We talked about research and development as opposed to his experience at the University of Cincinnati, where he was part of a team that won the Prince Salman International Water Prize, big prize, creativity prize, really an honor. Um, and he spoke very positively about at King Saud University the 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 resources that are available to him in terms. And he said two things. He said instrumentation. And what was the second thing? Oh, um, uh, it's, uh, oh man, now I'm blanking. Yeah. So, but we have to go, but instrumentation, you know, obviously just the equipment to do it. And, and I, I think at that point he talked about the quality of his students. Maybe it had to be with the, the talent, essentially, this isn't a wordy word, but instrumentation and talent. And so, and he talked about how, how, how impressive the students he has to work with now. And obviously this is reflected in this Times of Higher Education. By the way, Times Higher Education is something that they really look at and they like to see because it's been it's a ranking that's been done for years and it's highly regarded. I thought it'd be interesting to, uh, so they were talking about global, you know, Cambodia's East just outside the 100 and for 100, top 100 and increased numbers of universities ranked overall <clears throat> in the Arab world. Uh, THE Times Higher Education also does a ranking. So in the Arab world, top universities in the Arab world, Saudi Arabia, King Abdulaziz University, one. King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals, two. Qatar University, three. King Saud University, where Dr. Abdulaziz Awanazi is a professor, four. University of Sharjah, UAE, five. United Arab Emirates University, six. Abu Dhabi University, seven. Al Faisal University, which is part of the King Faisal Foundation, universe which is extraordinarily impressive um and that eight uh, imam uh, muhammad bin uh, saud islamic university is nine and then the american university of beirut so out of that top 10 let me go one two three four five five of the top 10 in the arab are, are in saudi arabia that's impressive that's awesome good stuff richard yella number six rounding us out here for the week episode 62 saudi health plans 100 partnership pro 100 partnership projects worth 13 billion dollars saudi arabia has announced a major plan to involve the private sector in 100 health projects over the next five years resulting in 13 billion dollars in investment opportunities the initiatives announced by saudi health for public private partnerships include the operation of two new medical cities a project to provide 900 beds for medical rehab and long-term care facilities, as well as restructuring 200 primary care centers and providing air medical evacuation services. This is according to Saudi Arabia's health minister, Fahad Al-Jalil. Jalajil. Sorry about the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you got that, Fahad Al-Jalil. 
um and just a part of that story the ministry has restructured the procedures for issuing license and related regulations to ease investors journey uh and it recently launched a call center to provide services for the medical business sector we've talked about it and there's not a lot to say on this it was included because it's an interesting interesting uh a very important sector interesting data point um you know, so much of this 2030 progress and, you know, ultimate success is how much the private sector can be involved in. And, you know, PIF plays an important role in the economy, uh, you know, early in on uh, key sectors, loss leader investor on key sectors, really trying to grow sectors and segments and that sort of thing. And there's always a concern it'll crowd out private sector. So it's always good to see things like this where it's a very concerted effort to make sure that these assets are going to be available, these opportunities, investment opportunities are going to be available and specifically are available to the private sector because that that's key part. That's a key part of, of the progression of the Saudi economy. Mm -hmm. Richard, nothing else to add to that. Great episode today. Depending on where you're listening to us, if you're listening to us or watching us on YouTube, we appreciate it very much. Um, Richard, thank you very much. Good one. Awesome. Thank you to all our listeners in 52 countries and growing on 29 you know, podcast platforms and growing in our, you know, our YouTube uh, subscribers are blowing up. It's it's thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And see you next week.